Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. Broadcasting live around the world, this is The Ryan Lindsay Show. Phone lines are open to speak with Ryan or any of his guests at 319-527-6702 or email Ryan. The email address is ryan at ryanlindsayshow.com. Now, here's Ryan Lindsay. Once again, broadcasting live from the fabulous Northwoods of Wisconsin. Glad to have you with me. We're going to have a fun conversation tonight, uh, along with my co-host Tamara Gleason. We are going to talk about the Shroud of Turin. If you're not familiar with it, then, well, stay close, because we're going to get you familiar with it. Could it be the, the burial shroud of Jesus, the burial cloth of Jesus. That's what we'll talk about with Dr. Joy Jeffries-Pugh tonight. Uh, she, is a, she has been researching this for over 40 years, and uh, we're happy to have her on the show. Um, we'll get to her in just a moment. You have to, uh, as always, introduce my co-host, Tamara Gleason. Tamara, how are you? Hello, Ryan. I'm great tonight. I'm excited for the show. Dr. Joy sounds very informative my kind yes. of gal. Looking forward to hearing what she has to say. She's been on History Channel. She's been on Coast to Coast. She's been all over doing, sharing her research. And uh, I think she has very well-rounded uh, research um, background to choose from. And we'll be able to talk about a lot of it tonight. Are you familiar with the Shroud of Turin? You know, I am. As a, as a researcher myself and one that believes in, in Jesus Christ, um, I, I do. I do believe that he existed. The shroud, I don't know. It, it looked as an artist. It, it, it seems to me it could have been faked. But but why? I think that's the, that's the question. But uh, yeah, so I'm looking forward to hearing what Dr. What, what's her last name? How do you pronounce it? Pew. P-U-G-H. Pew. Okay. And we'll... Awesome. Yep. So she should be fun. Dr. Joy Jeffries Pugh, she's an alumnus of South Georgia College, Valdosta State College, and Nova University, where she received her doctorate in education. Her background involves working as a researcher, counselor, mental retardation professional, human services director, and consultant. Dr. Joy appears in several television documentaries on the History Channel concerning end times. And for over 40 years, Dr. Pugh has been involved in researching biblical prophecy. Joy consults with people from around the world on various issues and current events involving science and religion. She also serves as a consultant in education with MUFON regarding the spiritual and religious aspects of paranormal and UFO experiences. And we'll have to talk about that as well. Very glad to welcome Dr. Joy Jeffries-Pugh to the show. Dr. Joy, how are you? 
I'm fine, Ryan. It's good to be able to be on your show tonight. And hello, Tamara. It's nice to get to be with you tonight as well. Oh, well, I love that southern accent. Do you, are you currently <laughs> living in Alabama? <laughs> no, I actually live in South Georgia. So this little accent is, is a little South Georgia country girl that grew up on a South Georgia farm oh, many I, years ago. Oh, love Georgia. I spent five weeks there last year. Love, love Georgia. Well, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me on as your guest to talk about my research. I thank you for it so much. Oh, oh our pleasure. Absolutely. We, uh, Like I said, you've, you've got a lot of research and a well-rounded background, so I think uh, there's a lot we, we can talk about tonight. Yes, so I look start... forward to talking about this. <laughs> let's start with the Shroud of Turin. Um, controversial, of course. Is it real? Is it fake? For anybody just joining us who maybe not uh, may not be familiar, explain what exactly the Shroud of Turin is. Well, the main thing that people need to realize is that when Jesus went to the uh, cross and he was crucified, he was actually wrapped in a linen cloth uh, that was owned by Joseph of Arimathea. And when he was placed inside the tomb there on the third day, he rose. And when the four Gospels that are written, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they contain information about Jesus' burial and his linen clothes that remained in the tomb after his resurrection. And it also even mentions in John that uh, there was a face napkin that was also left in the tomb. And so what Matthew and Luke use is a Greek word, it's actually envelop, like an envelope, to explain how Jesus' dead body was really initially wrapped. And so this envelope, if you think just about an envelope that we use to send out letters, it's actually a rectangular kind of container. And this is just how the linen shroud was wrapped around Jesus' body and was laid over him by covering his front, continuing over his head and down his back. And so this particular wrap also had the face napkin that was placed over the face. It was something that they would do. And it seems that, you know, whenever someone passes away, then there will be, you know, like rigor mortis and things like that that will, will actually set in and then gradually kind of dissipate about three days after, you're, you know, you've died and that kind of thing. So when this particular cloth was brought to the attention of people, uh, and I trace it from the time it was there in the tomb all the way to where it was uh, carried and became what was known as the cloth of Edessa. And then as it moved through history through the uh, ownership of the Knights Templar, and then how it was actually given uh, and actually bequeathed, it was uh, to King Umberto. And when he passed, he bequeathed it to uh, the Pope. And so now the Pope is really the owner, owner of the Shroud, and it's reason we call it the Shroud of Turin, is that this particular cloth, or this linen cloth, this huge envelope of cloth, is owned there uh, by, um, the, of course, the Roman Catholic Church under the auspices of the, the Pope and having the connection to the Pope and him being you know, responsible for it. It's actually housed in Turin, Italy. And so that is why the, the shroud is known as the Shroud of Turin. But it is absolutely uh, the burial cloth of Jesus. And then the face napkin that was there in the tomb found its way to Avita, Spain. And it has been housed there in Avita, Spain since about uh, 500 uh, A.D. 
And so the blood that's on the face napkin and the shroud both match. It's exactly the same with exactly the same types of things you would find in uh, linen cloth when it's been in a certain area. There's bacteria, there's, there's pollen counts, there's all kinds of things. And when you put the face napkin over the shroud of Turin, they match. The blood is exactly the same in the same spots. So a lot of people have been concerned that it absolutely could have been a fake. But we now know through the research that I've done and so many people, because most people do not realize that the Shroud of Turin is the most research relic in all of human history. And that's really saying something, because we're not talking about somebody that is just looking at this from a, let's say, conspiracy theory. We're talking the best in the business that have really gone and really looked at this particular cloth. And the fact that that space napkin existed and has been known to be in one place for so long, then that kind of discredits anything with people who have said that they thought that the Shroud of Turin was actually a fake cloth that might have been painted by, um, you know, somebody like um, Leonardo Leonardo da Vinci, and that it could have been a cloth that was from the Middle Ages. So really, you know, my research shows that this cloth it did exist. It was there in the tomb and how it was moved into um, Odessa. It was protected. And then how the Knights Templar actually got their hands on it, kept it kind of underground. But it was actually shown throughout history. And I've documented the different times that it was actually shown in public. And it has also been known in some of the uh, documentation that when people touched it, they actually were healed. But it's it's an amazing it's an amazing piece of uh, cloth that most people need to take the time to really look at because I truly believe because of the research that I've done that it is in fact in the image of Jesus Christ and so when we have m- many times wondered what our Savior looks like that you can literally go and look at a picture of him that exists in the negative especially the negative film when you take a picture of the shroud I mean it's very defined and very clear you know clear. And probably some of the first icons that were painted, that there's, there's two icons that were painted of him and Mary that existed in the monastery there at the uh, base of Mount Sinai. And uh, when you look at this and you look at some of the Justinian coins, the uh, gold coins that were actually imprinted way, in, way back in the day, many, many moons ago, that carries us much further back than the days of Leonardo da Vinci, that we find that those uh, particular pictures of Jesus actually match what's on the Shroud of Turin. So uh, it's an amazing cloth, and I have a, I'm so honored to have been able to have started working on this piece of cloth back in 1970, probably 75, 76, 77, wow. in that area, when uh, it first kind of was it became known and there was a lot of things that were being done on that cloth through what was called a research, a scientific research committee that was called Stirrup. And what they did, they were allowed to go in and look at the shroud and have access to it for a good number of hours. And they were all scientists, very, very, very great scientists in their own fields. And so I had had a strange dream when I was six years old that I really believed that I saw Jesus and really got an idea of what I believe he looked like. And so my dad brought home, I can't remember if it was a look or a life magazine. Those magazines were really big back in the day when I was growing up in South sure. Georgia. I mean, that was kind of like we didn't have the World Wide Web and things like that. So you look forward <laughs> to a, ma- a magazine coming home, you know, or, or even a newspaper. 
And so in that particular uh, magazine, there was this picture of this Friday Shrine. And I'll, I'll never forget him saying, Joy, this, this is Jesus. Uh, that they're saying is on this cloth, and I'll never remember, forget, you know, and remember how it really affected me because I was like, I've seen this man before. So my dad and I would have a lot of discussions in regard to this shroud and the type of research that was going on way back then. So my interest has been in this for a very, very, very long time, and the fact that I really believed it was real the first time I saw it because of the image matching the image that I had truly had when I was six years old of Jesus. So um, I never right. felt that it was not correct. I always felt from the day that I saw it that it literally was exactly what I knew that I had seen. So I pursued the research to want to know the truth about it and every aspect of it. And, you know, in other words, being a researcher, you kind of have to put your, you know, you have to put everything aside and you have to look at it with, without blinders on. And you have to look at it without what you've been taught in history. You've got to go, okay, here's this thing. Let me find out everything I can find out about it scientifically. And, and you know, I have always done my research as if I were um, going before a court and I was an attorney, and I'm going to present the case to you, and that's how I would determine, is, you know, is there for a, a, lot, a lot of stuff for this, or is there a lot of stuff that maybe is not uh, a positive thing about it? And so I went through every aspect of all the research that had been done on it, and it was very, very difficult to start tracing the shroud, but I spent about seven years putting together the books called Beguiled, Eden to Armageddon. And uh, and then the books before that, I did um, Eden, the Knowledge of Good and Evil, six six six, and and I traced this stuff all through those books. And like I say, the Eden series book took me a, a little over seven years, and then the Beguile book uh, took about that long as well. So you know, the first book that I came out with was called Antichrist, the Cloned Image of Jesus Christ, and that was back in 1999. And of course, I have an updated. Uh, um, book now that's uh, a newer edition where I've added some things to that in, in it from its original state. But, you know, I was talking about this, you know, before the year 2000, and that was something that you didn't really read a lot about. So I had to do a lot of research. But the main thing is not having the World Wide Web. I didn't have access to a lot of fake news right. like we see today. Right. I was, you know, I was able to go into a library and I literally had to go into the library, and I had to go find the books. And so really the books that I established my research on were books that I could either purchase or either that I could go and look at in the Library of Congress and have something sent to me in a little local library uh, and, and really understand the research behind it and not be being fooled by this or that or whatever. So, you know, my books that I have written about this, and, and really like uh, the Antichrist book, the Eden book, and the Beguile series books, they all contain this information, and they all build on each other. Because as time has gone on, then there's been more and more research that's been done on it that i tried to add to it just to continue the process and the thought process. So this is really real, and we need to be paying um, very close attention to it, so it's a very it's a very important cloth. I think that we should all pay attention to. Absolutely. Oh yes. How did the image get on the cloth? Because we know it's not paint. We know it's it's all not blood, although there's blood on the shroud. But how did the image of the face actually get on the cloth? Well, you know, the the cloth really has its entire body. 
mm-hmm. and if anyone's listening and you want to go and just look it up, you can look up, you know, Stratotrin, or you can go to my website, which is Dr. Joy, and that's D-R-J-O-Y-E, Dr. Joy with an E, dot com. And you can look at that picture, and you can see that the entire picture, the head, the, the body, and the, the, the back of this man is on this huge 14-foot cloth. I mean, it's, it's literally his entire body on that cloth. And so when these researchers started looking at how could we, like, reproduce this, I mean, that was the intent to start off with, can it be reproduced? Now that we have certain technology, can we do that image? Can we make that image happen? And there was a lot of people who tried to mold you know, a figure of a person and then try to drape the cloth over them and then try to bring paint into it and then, you know, try to do all these things. Well, they never have been able to really reproduce that image ever like it is on that cloth. I mean, they have tried and they have given people right. opportunities that, you know, we'll pay you X amount of dollars if you can reproduce this in your laboratory. Nobody has been able to do that, even with the technology that we have today because the interesting feature is that this image is on a certain level of the cloth it's 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 like in other words you couldn't paint it and make it do it and you couldn't image it and make it do it it's almost what i try to show in my work it's almost like pure light went through this cloth like a laser like pure light and so we don't have that technology that subatomic capability to really do that which we kind of now are pretty sure that it had to be something. And, of course, we know that the scriptures have always told us that God is light. So it's right. that this, this resurrection process, and, of course, the research that I had done about, you know, when the sperm comes into contact with the egg, there is a energy that's born that never really dies because, according to the law of thermodynamics, you cannot destroy energy. So it appears that when Jesus was in that state, laying in that cloth, that when he resurrected, he literally resurrected his entire body through that cloth with some type of burst of pure light. And he literally went through the cloth, and it left the image of him there for every one of us that wants to look at it to behold. And, um, you know, when you look at, all the research that has been done of trying to discredit it, we have to understand that there's always been people who want to discredit it because, you know, once we come out and say scientifically that that cloth is real, it's from the time of Jesus, and that has been done, that research has been done, that we're now showing that it is a cloth from the time period of Jesus, and then all the stuff that goes along with it. And when you do that, then what does that do to the other religion? It's no different than we know that there's probably pieces of, of Noah's Ark up in, in you know, the Mount Ariat area in Turkey, but yet the Turkish government will not let us go up there and get a piece of it. Why? Because it would prove wow. that the Bible was telling us the truth and that every – and I show this in my research as well – is that every known civilization had a flood story. So it's not like this stuff is not real, but once we start saying – it's real, and we can prove it's real, then people have to reevaluate the fact that Jesus was here. He did walk the earth. He did resurrect. And what did he tell us? He's coming back. And if you look at the scriptures, it follows the scriptures exactly like it should. And we can literally, with science, start proving it. I think one of the most interesting things about it was that they took and when they were doing the research on the shroud, they found out that it's really kind of a holographic image. Now, 
That's hard to do, to make a holographic image, even right. to try to paint like 3D images. I mean, people can do these 3D images, and you have to you know, look uh, across your eyes and be able to see something inside that image. <laughs> but the fact that this image has literally been made 3D, and we can take what we would normally like, for example, if we were going to go and let's say look at the images of Mars, and we want to take um, – you know, the high scientific thing of a V8 uh, ability to look at that in a 3D hologram form, well, all of a sudden you realize that, like, where we can see hills and valleys when we use this, like, on Mars or other planets or whatever, when we put it on the stride of Turin, we can see an image of a person. I mean, it's like a 3D image. And that's not something you can paint on there. So it is absolutely, I mean, the more that I have studied this cloth over these years, the more I am so amazed by the capability. Because, you know, when you start looking at pure dynamic wavelengths and how they raise over that body, it's just absolutely amazing to me that, um, that we have allowed unfortunately people to uh, discredit it and i really believe and i show this in my work that the reason it's been discredited for so long is that it's to keep it uh, kind of quiet until the right time that there will come a right time when things like the ark of the covenant will be revealed when i believe that things like the noah's art will be revealed and that things like this will be revealed as truth because you cannot hide it you cannot hide it anymore and i um I will say this. I'd like to read something. In 1981, the Sturt Committee, and I talk about this in my, in my book as well, said that this is their conclusion. I mean, this, we're talking about the best scientists. We're talking about people who know about forensic science and how people, if they were murdered, how they would look, uh, if they were crucified, how a crucified man would look, uh, how the blood would be, how the blood would be under a certain condition if you're being traumatized. So we're talking about the greatest minds of scientists that went in to do this, and it was called, like I say, the S-T-U-R-P, and it stands for the Scientific Turin Research Project Committee. But this is what they said. This was their final report back in 1981. It said, we can conclude for now that the shroud image is that of a real human form of a scourged, crucified man. It is not the product of an artist. The bloodstains are composed of hemoglobin, and also give a positive test for serum albumin. The image is an ongoing mystery, and until further chemical studies are made, perhaps by those group of scientists or perhaps by some scientists in the future, the problem remains unsolved. So then in 1988, they tried to decide to do carbon dating. And the problem was is that when you do carbon dating, you've got to make sure you get the right piece of the cloth. Well, it's interesting to me that the British Museum and those people that were kind of responsible for getting this done allowed the pieces of the cloth to be taken from an area that they should have known was an area that was rewoven when it was the shroud was actually in a fire years ago. And when it was taken out, it was rewoven by some nuns around the outside of it. And I'm like, I have studied this enough to know when they cut that piece of cloth that they cut it in an area that they should have never cut that cloth. It was a, an area that definitely was an, had been rewoven. So what happened was they, they sent it to three different um, um, universities to be able to be reviewed. And what happened was it came back and they said that they thought it was a medieval piece of cloth and they had all these like different dates and things of that nature trying to make it look like it was not real. 
Mm-hmm. And when um, they came out with that, they tried to discredit back in 1988. Okay, well, what happened was is that the STIRP committee had already taken samples of the cloth, and sometimes uh, back before the Pope owned it, okay? And then they had sent those samples to people who do textile work. We're talking the top scientists in textile industry. And what they found was in those pieces, there was rewoven pieces of cotton. Well, if you study, like I have studied and I show in my research, the, the linen cloth, especially in the Hebrew tradition, never had anything else mixed. In other words, if they wore wool, they wore wool. If they wore linen, they wore linen. If they wore cotton, they wore cotton. But they never mixed linen and wool and cotton together, ever. So we know from Scripture that it was a linen cloth. We know that because the, the face napkin is linen. We know that the shroud is in that certain herringbone uh, and linen, so there should have never been any cotton in there. Well, when that came out, boy, did that cause a ruckus. Because then they're starting to say, well, we want to look at what happened with this 1988 carbon dating. And, oh, my gosh, you can go online if you really want to see some of the most recent things about that, where they have really condemned those people who knew better and should have never, ever allowed that area to have ever been cut to determine about it. So, in my opinion, it was done for the specific region of keeping right now that uh, the fact that there is an image of Jesus Christ on that cloth, and he did exactly what he said he did. He, crucif- he was crucified, and he went to the cloth, and he's resurrected. So, uh, you know, there, there's just this full proof that you just cannot get away from. So uh, when they realized that the textile industry could tell, you know, could say, oh, this is not right, then they went back and found out that the way that they had actually done the testing was not appropriate as well, and that had never been released to the public. So now they've had to come back and discredit the 1988 carbon dating and say, you know, we're wanting more information. We want this to be redone. And and now that's what's really going on because uh, if you want to know the truth, you can't be, like, skewing the evidence. And that apparently is what exactly was done. So my research shows that there is a reason that I fully believe that they, again, don't want these things known because it's not the right time to release it. But the fact that we have the scientific proof now from pieces that were taken from the original cloth, that those are now showing that that cloth is from the time of Jesus Christ. We also have people who are wonderful in the pollen dating capability and scientists that know about pollen, that know sure. about bacteria. Well, the very things that are on that, clo- that cloth are like where Jesus wore a crown of thorns. The, the thorn bush that is in Jerusalem that they more than likely would have used, the pollen was on that cloth. The type wow. of uh, tomb where he was put the area of his feet where that cloth was has tested positive for that particular uh, uh, deposit from from the stone that he would have walked on and his feet would have been on and would have been in that tomb. So the flowers that were in the area, the things that people brought uh, to do uh, the preparation for his uh, burial, the things that they would have used on that cloth are there. 
And then when you look at what the scripture tell you about him being crucified, it says that there was a cat of nine tails that we used on his back to give him so many stripes across his back, and it would literally reach into his skin and like a cat claw, dig in, and then if it was pulled back, it would literally pull the skin off the off your body. Well, you can look at the Shroud of Turin, and that is exactly what is there. And then the blood that's there, we know that it has been the chromosomes, the DNA have been looked at. It was, some of it was cloned. We know that it was a Jewish man that was on there, and every forensic scientist that has looked at it scientifically says this man was crucified. That literally when you traumatize a human being, that you will have certain levels of albumin and certain other kinds of proteins that will show up in the blood. We know that he was hit with a spear in the side and that the pericardial fluid that builds up around the heart when you're trying to breathe like he was up on the cross and he would have to strain up to try to get air, that when they pierced his side, that that run all down on him, and that's on the cloth. So, I mean, you could not take, you, you would have to take a man and crucify him and, and try to get that stuff on the cloth, but then how would you ever make him give off a pure light kind of radiation and go through it so those are the kinds of things that you really start have to look you really have to look at and realize that there is no way that we humans could ever come up and do something that this route of terrain is purely showing us has been done right right area code 319-527-6702 if you have a question for dr joy jeffries pew about the uh, shroud of turin and we are going to go to the phones here area code 347 hi you're on the ryan Lindsay show who's this and where are you calling from hi um my name is tanika and i'm calling from new york i didn't know if this was a show where you can ask a question i'm just experiencing um some stress to do with my job and I wanted to know if it was a good idea for me to switch to a different job I have an interview with tomorrow. But if you're not okay. doing questions, I understand because it's a really interesting show about God. Yeah, yeah enjoy the show. Yeah, I'm sorry. We're not – enjoy the show. We're not doing readings tonight. Okay? Okay. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Okay. So, Dr. Joy, you mentioned that the blood was cloned, and it's the title of the book, The Cloned Image of Jesus Christ. Take me through that. Oh, see, and that's the thing that most people did not even realize. When I started doing this book that first came out in 1999 that I have redone, when I started talking about cloning, people were laughing at me, and they were saying, oh, no, no, we can't clone. And I'm like, well, I've done the research. We can go back into the 1800s, and we were cloning frogs. You know, there's there's evidence and, and research on all that stuff. And so when this stirrup committee went in and got the blood stains and had them analyzed, they tested the DNA at Genova's Institute of Legal uh, Medicine, and what those shroud threads, really, actually they showed that they were able to replicate that DNA. So they sent it and had it tested at the Texas University Health Center, and those technicians that were there were able to identify that the, the blood was definitely human, with both X and Y chromosomes, and and they confirmed that it was a male, like I said, and that they were able to isolate 700 base pairs of the DNA. And when they did, they literally did some more work with those and actually cloned some of that. And that's the thing um, that's most amazing to me is that we have always acted or been told that something like that is a really hard thing to do and that, 
you know, when I first started doing this research about cloning, everybody was like, oh, no, that's just science fiction. And what they don't understand is when you go to clone anything, uh, even a person, you can literally hollow egg of a woman and get rid of all the DNA, and you can pop in a skin cell, a blood cell, whatever, and, and, and you just electrify it, and it will start reproducing, and it will start dividing. And in nine months, if that cell is from you, when that woman delivers you in nine months, it's not going to have anything to do with her. It's going to be an identical image of you, and it's not a twin. It is you all over in the flesh again. So when you start duplicating things like that and start looking at it, that's the thing that got me is that where we've been told, oh, you can't do this and cloning is not that, here they were already doing this DNA cloning right. on the Shroud of Turin back in that day. So, you know, when you do that and you can see that there's chromosomes and there's this and there's uh, the blood pairs and all that, when they start saying, well, you know, that's not possible, it was possible. And these scientists were literally doing it. Right. So right. if if the blood was cloned, then when, when do you suspect that happened? Well, the thing that I always was concerned about, because I have studied, um, you know, the end of today's scripture for about all my life because I had such an interest in it, in it because of the dreams that I had. Um, I felt like that, that I was going to see the end of days and that that's what I was being warned about in that particular dream. And so I always wondered how it would be that a person, which we were told in the book of Revelation, would be uh, the number and his name, in, in other words, it would be a man, and his number would equal 666. And so that he would have this great charisma and great, great capability, and that Jesus, when he was here, he's like, you know, warning us to be real careful that there's going to come a person saying it's Jesus, and he'll be here and here and there and wherever, and that he is going to stand in the temple of God and proclaim himself to be God. And so when I started looking at all that, I'm like, why is it that how or how could it be that a person could come and claim to be a Messiah, Savior of the world, and we would fall for that? How how could anybody fall for that? And how could Satan incarnate himself in a human being? Because I had done all the research on uh, how mm. these demonic entities will come on a person, and if you right. have a soul then that person can reject that demonic position. I mean, we, you know, you do an exorcism, and he right. has to come out. Would, well, Satan would never want to be in a body that had a soul that could eject him out of it. And so when I started studying the, the cloning aspect, I came across some information that was uh, in the Jewish Talmud and some of the old, old writings about Golem. And that's where we get the story of Frankenstein from. And what they were saying is that there were beasts of the field that did not have a soul within them. In other words, they looked like us, they could be like us, but yet they didn't have the soul within them. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, how could you absolutely bring something into the world that Satan could walk around in and you would think that he was a man? And yet he would be able to have these miraculous capabilities like the Bible says, bring fire down from heaven and do all these other great things at the end of days that would confuse people and make them think that, you know, the Messiah had showed up. Right. So when I started looking at that, I went back and looked at Revelation 13:13 13, 13, because it talks about, you know, fire coming down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men and that um, this image of the beast was going to be here. And that, that this false prophet was going to allow the image to speak and live in the sight of men. So I started looking at 
I've always had an interest in looking at the true Greek or the true Hebrew because sometimes when you translate uh, scripture into English and you bring it from Hebrew in the Old Testament and Greek in the New Testament, we don't have the same uh, words to use in the English language that they're really pointing us to either in Hebrew or Greek. And so I really wanted to know what it was when it's talking about the image of the beast because that was interesting to me. And what I found was that this that when John was writing the book of Revelation, and he, of course he was John uh, uh, the Revelator, and he was on the Isle of Patmos, and he was in kind of in prison at that particular time, but he spoke Koine, Koine Greek, and so that was the common language of the people at that time. So John he could have really chosen like three different Greek words to identify the word image. They had three different kinds. They have one that's a Greek word called caricature, and that means like for something that looks like a stamp of an image. And then there's a word called karagama, and I'm thinking that's how I pronounce that correctly. And that is like engraved stuff. But instead, he used the word icon, and in the Greek, that's E-I-K-O-N, and we we get I-K-O-N or uh, uh, I-C-O-N, whichever one we want to use in in the English language. But that word icon is identifying what he was really saying. He used that word. And I thought, oh, my gosh. Then that means that the image of the beast is not a painting or a picture or some engraved art or a computer. Because many people try to say that the, the, the beast would be a huge computer that would have all this information about people in it. But the word icon, that Greek word, E-I-K-O-N, that we get I-C-O-N from, means a statue in the likeness of someone. And so I'm like, oh, then it would be a famous person. And who would be an icon that John the Revelator would even be talking about? And like I mentioned, an icon is back in the day was only of a saint or Jesus or Mary. And so I'm um, like, if you go further back, like I was talking about to Mount, um, Mount Sinai and the, the, um, the monastery that's there, the only two iconic pictures are Jesus and Mary. And so the fact that that picture and the Justonian coins that were uh, stamped during that period of time that the monastery was there, they all look like the Shroud of Turin. So I'm like, oh, that's really interesting that John would have been talking about an iconic image. So then it, would, it started like ringing true to me where Jesus said to the Sadduc- you know, Sadducees, Pharisees, and people of that nature when he was you know, going to go to the cross. And he told them, he said, you know, uh, in three days I'm going to raise this temple back up. And they laughed at him because they said, it took us 40 years to build the temple. There's no way that you're going to raise that temple back up. But he was talking not about the physical building of a temple. He was talking about his body. And when you understand that you are in the image of God and you are the temple of God, and when Jesus himself said that, you know, there's going to be this man looking like me, and we're told in Thessalonians that, you know, this Antichrist or this so-called Messiah, that the world will think it's the Messiah, it's really the Antichrist, that he is going to be in the image of God. In other words, he's going to be in the temple of God 
proclaiming that he is God. So if that's the case, he's going to have to look like Jesus. And if we have can make a clone, like I told you, it's not a hard thing to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. And we can have his flesh walking on this earth, then that means there's no soul. Because the only way the soul can get there is when a true sperm and egg comes together. And that's something scientifically that we cannot reproduce. Just like we can't reproduce that energy that went through that cloth. It's the same thing. It's energy. So that would be a way... To have an image like what John is telling us in the Greek, an iconic image. In other words, a statue in the likeness of someone. And I just find it very interesting that that's the word that he specifically used. And, you know, if you study, um, you know, uh, especially uh, Hebrew and, and, and things like that of that nature, and, and and the Israelites and things, they never worshipped like Im- images. So it's just interesting right. that John the Revelator is saying this thing that's coming, this image. And, and this is the only time in, in the book of Revelation, image is used four times, and it's only that's the only time that Greek word icon is used. You can go to Strong's Concordance. You can look it all up. Nowhere else in the Bible, in Scripture, does that appear like that. So this is very, very spot on to be paying attention that there's something going to come, and it's going to look like Jesus. It's going to be walking in the temple of Jesus. And we can look back, and, you know, the Roman Catholic Church, they've always had, like, statues and images and stuff. And you just think about if a, a statue of Mary, and we've seen this happen many times, in, uh, and of Jesus, too, where they look like they're weeping. And people mm-hmm. will come from all over the world to worship at those bases of those statues, believing that they're going to be healed or it's a miraculous event or whatever. Well, if they would come to that, imagine somebody really right. proving that that's Jesus walking among us. He can bring fire down from heaven. He can heal people. They would flock to him without any reservation. And that was the thing that always was confusing to me. How could somebody that's a Christian living in a world at the end of days, because if we study Scripture, we know we're living at the end of days. My research shows we're living in the end of days, and probably more than likely we've started in the tribulation period of seven years. If we are living like that, and I truly believe we're there, then the false prophet has to be in place. The Antichrist, who is going to perform himself, or believe, make people believe he's the Messiah, uh, those people have got to be waiting in the wings because everything else in Scripture is being totally f- fulfilled to its ultimate degree. In other, in other words, everything prophetically is 100%. And that's what I show in my research. I mean, you could go to Las Vegas and, and you know, you have bets on something. This prophecy <laughs> stuff in the Scripture is 100% correct. So you can base whatever it's saying. It is going to happen. Now, we are told we don't know the day or the hour, but it says we can know the season. And so I do believe we're in that season. And if that's the case, only until this just generation would we have been able to be able to clone that blood and that stuff that's on that shroud and be able to produce a vehicle of flesh for Satan to live in and never have the fear of being 
an exorcism or holy water or something and pour it on him to make him leave that body. He'll right. never have an internal fight. So that's the only way that I can see it can fulfill Scripture is that mm-hmm. this being is in a man's image. He's in an iconic image. He would have to meet the qualifications that he, we're told Jesus said, they're going to say he's here and he's there and whatever, to be paying attention. But he also said to those Pharisees, when you, know, when you kill this body, I'm going to raise it up in three days. And he did. And the Shroud of Turin proves that. So the fact that it, this, all this has been left, you know, people say, well, why did he leave anything like that? You know, why would he want to leave? I believe he left it to do exactly what Satan is going to do. Because Satan was Lucifer in the very beginning. Lucifer was the number one archangel. He was the first being, really, probably, that God actually created. And he wanted to be God. That's why he got thrown out of heaven, because he was trying to play like he was equal to, and which was really stupid because he should have known he was created and God is I am and has never been created. He just existed. But he thought he could overthrow God. And when God put him out, there was 200 angels that followed with him that was, that was put out of heaven because he was trying to be like God. And what do we see in the Garden of Eden? We see that there were two trees in the midst. All the other trees were good for food and whatever. But these two trees in the midst of the garden were for life, the tree of life, and the other one was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. All the other trees, pecan tree was a pecan tree, apple tree was an apple tree, peach tree was a peach tree, life tree was a, book of, it was, a, it was a tree of life. The only thing that's mixed in that garden is that tree of good and evil. So what was happening is that Satan was trying to again look like God. He was playing like God. The only tree that God told Adam and Eve to stay away from was that tree. Don't touch it. Don't look at it. Don't have anything to do with it. Stay away from it. It was mixed. If you look at Scripture, everything that God created, he made it after its kind. In other words, where we have all this genetically modified stuff, where we're, put, we're putting in tomatoes with cucumbers, and now we have a tomato cucumber, God never mixed. That's why I'm saying the Shroud of Turin was a linen cloth. Anywhere it's been cut that there's any cotton in it, that is not true to the way God created and his people followed his tradition. It was nothing was mixed. That's why he told the people that went out uh, into to, to, the, to find the Holy Land and, and go into the Promised Land. He told Moses and them, Kill every man, woman, and child that's out there in your way from these pagan areas because they're mixed beings. He did not want the pure lineage coming out of of Adam and Eve's son, uh, Seth, all the way to Noah, to ever have any inkling of anything that's mixed because he knew that Jesus was going to have to come one day and die on that cross, and he had to be perfect in his lineage. That's where we're told that Noah was perfect in his lineage. Those lineages, when we hear in in Scripture, so-and-so begot so-and-so, so-and-so begot so-and-so, the reason it's there is to let you know that perfection that was coming out of Eden was the only way to save us because we had fallen in the garden by messing with the tree of good and evil, and then we started mixing with that. And so those lineages that came out and came all the way to Jesus literally is how he was born into a virgin. 
and he did not have this 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 sin tainted blood within him. And that blood is why we can be saved. And people say, well, how could that how could that possibly be? He it shows us. So in other words, we can go in Matthew and Luke, and we can trace Jesus all the way back to Adam. And if we can do that, and we can show that it was from the lineage of Seth and Seth to Noah and Noah to Shem, and then right on down, then we have that pure lineage where there was no mixing that was going on. And when we see that, then you can understand even greater the miraculousness of Mary having a son and not, you know, there was no fornication involved. In other words, he was already in existence. So it was not like where you and I have to come into existence when a sperm and egg hit, hit each other to form that that energy that I'm talking about will never die. It'll never go away. It's always going to be here. You cannot destroy it. He didn't have to have that because he was already that. So that's even more important that Scripture tells us he was a holy thing. And there's no other time in Scripture that that is ever said about anything else. You've got holy ones. You've got angels. He was considered a holy thing. And that, if you look at uh, Strong's Centaurus, makes him very, 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 very special where nothing else even compares. So if you look at all that and you look at the proof of what, how you can clone and how Jesus' body could be used because we now have this scientific capability of cloning, that literally we could produce a vehicle for Satan to walk around in and to really do what Scripture says, bring down fire from heaven, heal people, do miraculous things as a man. Uh, and, and and that was the thing that was like red flag for me. I'm like, okay, now this is where you need to be looking because if we've got the image of Jesus on the, on the shroud, then pay attention. Who could be looking, acting in the, in, in the capability of meeting all the criteria that it says about the prince that is to come that will mm-hmm. be perceived as the Messiah, but he is, in fact, the Antichrist. And, of course, my books go through and they trace all this down to these lineages as to how and why certain thoroughbred lineages have tried to maintain this story from the story of Camelot that King Arthur is going to live again. And if you look at that, and you know the Knights Templar had the Shroud of Turin, it literally is the Holy Grail. It has more blood on it than anything else. So it is, it, and their story, it, you have to understand that when secret societies tell a story, they're doing that so the average person doesn't get the gist of the whole understanding of the story. So they use stories, like allegories, to teach something and hand it down. Because what they were saying is that this king, once lived, is going to live again as a child. And we could see that in uh, the, the, the movie of Passion of the Christ that Mel Gibson did. Because we see mm-hmm. Satan, it looks like a homorphodite person, walking through the crowd while Jesus' blood is being splattered all over everything there in the square, including the lens of the camera if you do a slow motion of the camera, like we just could do that, especially on the um, the um, the videotaping and not the CD disc. 
if you use video, you could slow it down to the frames, and it was literally splattering the blood onto the frames, and your mind can pick that up, but your eyes can pick it up, and you don't even realize what you've seen. But what is that satanic, so-called, hermorphodite-looking person doing? He is, he's carrying a little old man that looks like a child in his arms while Jesus' Jesus's blood is being splattered everywhere. And if you really stop and think, Camelot, the story of Camelot and King Arthur is that the Holy Grail does exist and that King Arthur is going to live again one day. So I started tracing how that was going down through the secret societies. I mean, I have all that in my books, the, the, the way that you trace it from the first secret societies that came out of uh, Egypt right off the, um, the, the ark there with uh, Nimrod and all of that. I, I, all that's traced down in my books. And then as well as what Scripture tells us that the Antichrist is going to come from this tribe of Dan, and then it's going to be an adder in the way. And so Dan is left out of the 144,000. There's not 12,000 people from the tribe of Dan mentioned in the book of Revelation. And so that tells us that this tribe intermingled, it mixed with these Babylonians and people that God had said do not mix with. And what we're finding is that those particular lineages are connected to royal families. Okay, we know that Scripture is telling us that this prince to come, this prince that has power of the air, is a prince. So you can't come out and say, if you don't have royal lineage, I could not say, well, you know, I can be queen tomorrow or I can be a princess tomorrow. You know, if I were to marry into it, that's one thing. But for you to be able to say, I'm going to be a prince, you have got to come from a thoroughbred lineage, a blue blood lineage, to be able to claim that you are a prince. And we know in, the, in, you know, in Scripture, especially in Daniel, it talks about the people's prince. It talks about all these things that were going on with the Assyrian and 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 how that's all connected into Babylonian truth and it just you can just you can just manifest itself right on down to today's world. And that's what I've looked at is that if we are living at the end of days and we're meeting all the other requirements of scripture about the end of days. We may not know the day or the hour, but we will know the season. And if we're in that season, what has to be happening? It has to be like a woman in travail where we're having earthquakes in divers places, when we have, you know, increase in hurricanes, we have forest fires, we have famines, we have pestilence, we have plagues, and they all start mingling together. Because if you are a woman and you know about having a baby in, eight, in nine months, what happens is when you first start off, you may have a little sickness. But then as you move toward that day of delivery, then the sickness, you, you have mood swings, you hurt, you're in pain, you have kicking, you have intenseness and the pain, how close they get together, and then to the point that it's almost unbearable. And our world in the last year has now gone into an area where we have all these things happening at the same time, and they're intermingling, and they're getting greater and greater intensity. And if that's going to happen like that, then that tells us we are meeting the qualifications of tribulation period. So therefore, if that's the case, that three or three and a half years, if we let's just say the tribulation started this year with, with COVID. Let's just say that's the that's the plague that is going and has changed our entire world. 
It's the first time anything that's come along has changed everything in the world. And then we've had to react to it because, like, when the hurricanes come in and we've had to put people together and we know that our economy is going to fail if we don't put people back to work and we're going to have to sacrifice people back at work who are going to get sick and die because if we don't go back to work, then we don't exist. We can't get food on the table. We're seeing famines everywhere. I mean, there could be 20, 25 countries by the end of the year that are going to be in serious famine. You've got places like Australia that burned that does not have the capability to export wheat anymore. They were the breadbasket of the world. Countries are going to start really just taking hold of everything that we've got and not giving it to anybody else. And we can already see that from not being able to get in certain things from China that we were literally living on here in the United States. I mean, you can go in a, in a major department store or any place, and you find that those things are just not available right now. It's going to get that w- way with food. You can see the prices of food going up. You can see price gouging. But at the same time, if people don't work, we will become the survival of the fittest. Whoever's the most fit, most guns, most ammunition, whatever takes everybody else down. And right now, we are in that kind of period where if we have a hurricane, we have to move people into places, we've got to deal with COVID at the same time. If those all those people get sick, then they're going to go out and make more people sick. We can see the resurgence already of COVID. We were down, we're back up. And then we're starting to say, let's put them back in school. We're starting to see schools having to close down and certain parts of their schools not being able to do athletics because they're all getting sick again. And it's not something that's going away because what happens, even in the cases of people who have COVID and maybe have a light case, there's something else going on biologically within them because we're looking at a biotechnical, probably uh, induced virus. And that means that people who have looked like they had two days or two, you know, two weeks of nothing to be concerned about are now finding out they got myocardius, that their hearts are failing, their kidneys are failing. I mean, I've got friends that have found that out, and they were like, oh, my gosh, I've had a light case, and now I've got all these other things going wrong. I mean, there's cases and cases and cases. And then this, this inflammatory disease that's coming about that's showing that their livers and their kidneys and their appendixes are all inflamed months after they thought they had a little light case of COVID. So there's, there's going to be ramifications that are happening after this. And when you see that, that's like a woman in travail. You think it's one way, but it, all this stuff starts going and going and going and going into the point that there has to be a give. And it says when that happens, then we can look for the Battle of Armageddon at the end of that seven-year uh, tribulation period. During that tribulation, we're going to see all these things happening. I mean, we can look at the fires. We can look at the fires just out in California. We can look at the devastation of a, uh, a tornado-like thing that came through Iowa and destroyed half of our crops and stuff out there, bins and things that we have to live on. And you can look at the flooding and the destruction and all that's happening. And insurance, I mean, how long, much longer can insurances take care of it? How much longer can our government give out stimulus checks? Where is the money coming from? There's mm-hmm. going to be a day of reckoning because we, we're trying so hard to keep it all going, keep it all going, keep it all going. That's like a woman in travail. It's getting greater. It's getting worse. And all these things are starting to happen. So if that's the case, then this person that we've been told is in an iconic image, and his number is 666, has to be walking among us. No different than the prophecies of St. Malachi, who talk about the prophecy of the Pope. And I talk about that in my books as well. Well, the final Pope was supposed to be Peter the Roman. Well, right now, the person that's in there, Pope Francis, meets every qualification that that Pope of the prophecy was told to us would be like. 
And if you look at it, if the Pope on the shroud, and if you and my research shows this, when John Paul II was in uh, his Pope as Pope, he said his main thing was to complete the fissioning. Well, if you go back and look at science, fissioning mean, means cloning. It's like asexual reproduction. And that was his main goal. Well, you know, that's pretty interesting if that was what he was for and he met the qualifications of what he was here for that time. And then we had Pope Benedict come on board, and he's the first pope who says, oh, I don't think I want to be pope now. And he relinquishes his rights to put in what I truly believe is Pope Francis as Peter the Roman because he meets all the qualifications of a false prophet who is telling people, you don't have to believe in this. You can all be saved. We worship a god by... Uh, we have different names for the same God. We're worshiping the same God. He didn't talk about, well, you got to have salvation. He, he's teaching a, a, a type of um, good, feely things about Christianity that are not true to what Scripture tells us. And that's a false prophet. When you take, and you take the Scriptures and you don't believe them as they are written, and you start changing that, and and you know that we're going to welcome our space brothers and these aliens that are going to be coming in. You know we're going to probably baptize them. I mean, he he's gone to the extent of really bringing all the known religions under one umbrella. John Paul II was the first pope to do that. They had pilgrimages and they brought all these people in, including the atheists, and they allowed them all to worship and pray. Uh, I mean, you know, we're talking about every religion under the auspices. That's okay. We're, if you believe the Christ, what the Christian Bible says and what Scripture says, that's just not correct. And so, you know, John Paul II started that. And then Benedict, well, Pope Benedict did the same thing. He followed suit in the same way. And then now you've got Pope Francis even more saying so. And, and interesting enough, a month after Pope Francis took over as Pope, he literally told the world that the uh, Shroud of Turin was real, and it didn't get very much publicity. But they've always right. known it's real. There's no doubt in my mind. I mean, why would you spend the amount of money that's been spent on keeping the Shroud of Turin under, under these glass panels and perfect uh, gases that does not let it deteriorate? Why would you go to the extent of doing that if you thought that was fake? You would never go to the extent of what's been done to that Shroud of Turin and not letting people get there and not letting people do more studying and only letting certain people be able to see it. I mean, there's just all this, oh, play around it that literally I bring up in my books as well that, like I say, is to keep it at a certain time. It's all going to be told, but it's going to say, hey, look, the guy's here, and here's here's the proof of it. We've got the proof. Mm -hmm. We've got his blood. This is him. He can do this, and... You know, here's our Savior. And, so and that's is what Antichrist is going to appear as a Savior. Mm-hmm. Well, the person so, that meets all the qualifications all the way down from the tribe of Dan, and I have it all in my books, all in my books, from the tribe of Dan, the pedigree that has to be in place for a so-called Messiah to walk this earth and prove in a pedigree, in blood, that he is a prophet priest and king from the tribe and lineage of King David 
The only people that can prove that are the British royal family. They are the only ones. Now, I go a little bit further because who is King Arthur? When William was uh, conceived, uh, Diana tried to kill herself several times by throwing herself down stairs. She always said, even on live TV, I was used as a birthing chamber. She said that Charles never loved her, which we know he didn't. She was used for some purpose because he was involved with Camilla. Diana told the stories of how Camilla continued to have relationships with Charles, and he had relationships with Camilla. I've got all that written in my books as well to prove how that was set up. On top of that, here is the mother, which the future queen, trying to kill the future king in, you know, suicide attempts. Why was she trying to kill William? What you find out is that Charles wanted to name William Arthur so he would be King Arthur. And Diana said no. So what they did, he named him William. Okay, let's look at William. Diana never used his name, William. She called him Will or Wills. What does William end in? I am. That is the name of God. I am. So his name is Will, I am, Arthur. Wow. What are the odds of that? What? And and that's why I just keep showing in all my work how all this connects. And his pedigree goes all the way back to King David. He literally has Jewish ties and blood in the pedigree. But if he's walking in the image, he has the image. He literally can walk in the temple of God proclaiming that he is God. And in this image, if you look at him and his height and his weight, and everything about him, he matches the Shroud of Turin. Even now when he goes lot. in to have... <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's blowing that's, my mind. That's a lot to swallow. <laughs> that's a lot to swallow. That Prince, you're saying Prince William is the Antichrist. If, if he is in the cloned image that we are being told in Scripture... And his pedigree, everything that I'm telling you, matches exactly what Scripture says. And if he is the king author that is going to be raised from a man that died into a child again to be reborn from the holy of blood that all that Camelot and all those secret societies have been trying to bring to the table for the end of days, then he's the man. Mm. Nobody else meets the qualifications. Now, that's not a guess. I'm basing this all on research, and my books show every bit of that research. It tells you where to go. You can go look at it. You can look at it. You can pull it up. You can find those books, and you can do the research on it. I mean, I've done the homework for you. And literally, yeah. when I began presenting this case, I didn't want to fool myself. 
I didn't write a book to fool myself or any book to fool myself because I started out never thinking about writing a book. I was doing this because I wanted to know. This interested me enough that that shroud was literally the burial cloth of Jesus, and I wanted to prove that. And I was so excited when I saw some of the research, and then I was like, oh, my gosh, if we clone that, what have we got? We have got an iconic image walking among us that does not have a soul. When even when William stands to have his picture made, if you look at the cloth, the, the cloth of uh, the shroud of Shrin, Jesus' hands are down, like kind of over his private parts. Mm-hmm. When, whenever you see William, he's got his hands folded in exactly the same place. If you mm-hmm. understand secret societies, and he's of the, the highest order of the garter, he's a thousandth number guy. He has control over every committee that's out there under those auspices of those secret societies. That touches every part of the Illuminati. He is standing with his hands like that. If, any, if you know anything about secret societies, their dew guards, their hand positioning, everything, the way they handshake, everything they do has a sign and a symbol behind it. The average person never pays attention to that. But I have studied this, and I can tell you I watch on TV all the time the politics that's going on. They can be talking to somebody. Somebody will be doing – they actually will be doing their eyes in Morse code. They will be blinking <laughs> while somebody's saying something in Morse code. I've watched it. I've seen it. I know what was done. I know what was said. Opposite of what was being said. So, I mean, there, if, if, you, if you read my work, it's going to teach you how to look for these red, red flags. And they're right in our face. Satan is really good at keeping things simple, but it's like a double speak. What means yes to them, they say no. What means blue to them means red. Mm-hmm. And they know when somebody says, stands up and says, oh, yeah, this is, this is blue, that they're being told this is red. This is what you're supposed to do. I mean, it, it's absolutely amazing. Even going into the courthouses and seeing people stand up and do, you know, am I, uh, you know, uh, Am I the widow's son? Is there no help for the widow's son? I mean, if you're if you're into Freemasonry and you get pulled over on the side of the road and the guy that's pulled you over is a Mason and you get out and say it's no help for the widow's son, thank you very much. Get back in your car. You can go on. I mean, there's just, you know, I I, I know all about this stuff. It's, it's, it's really real. It's not fake. It's not conspiracy. It is really, really real. And and like I say, when I started putting these books together and putting science and religion together, I had somebody tell me, oh, gosh, Joy, you can't do that. Well, what's happening is, like I always said in the very beginning when I wrote that first book, science is going to prove everything the Bible has told us is real, and that's exactly what's happening. Mm-hmm. Well, Dr. Joy, we, we have run out of time. <laughs> Please let everybody know no. how we can find out more about you and uh, your books. Well, listen, you can go to my website. It's, like I said, www.drjoy, D-R-J-O-Y-E. It's joy with an E, dot com. And you can friend me on Facebook at joy, J-O-Y-E. The last name is Pugh, P-U-G-H. I'll be glad to have you friend me. 
If you go to my website and you'd like to ask a question, there's a submission form there. If you'll fill out that and send me the question, I do a radio show every last Monday night of the month on YouTube from 8 to 10 p.m. Eastern. And I answer those questions that I get live on uh, on those shows. So uh, okay. I look forward to hearing from you. If you've got a question or anybody would like to know more about me, that's the best two places to find out. And if you would like to find out and ask me a question, that's the best place to send the submission form to me because it does come directly to me, and I do answer those. Okay. Dr. Joy Jeffries-Pugh. Yeah, I, we're going to have to do this again, we, and I'll schedule more time for it next time. <laughs> this well, is, listen, uh, I would love this you to do this on. And I thank you, listen, <laughs> oh. I thank you so much for being interested in my research, and it's very nice to meet you all and look forward to being your guest again in the future. Excellent. We'll do yeah, that. Thank you, Joy. for me, Dr. Joy. Thank you so much. <laughs> thank you, too. God bless you all. Have a good Bye-bye. night. Bye-bye. Same to you. Good night. Oh, my, Tamara, what do you think of that? Uh, she she blew my mind in so many ways. Um, <laughs> very similar to me, she's received downloads, it sounds like, is, is from a little girl. And, you know, I've talked to you about that, of how I was told very young that I was going to be here when Jesus came back. And um, I knew that this lifetime was very, very special at a very early age. And blending the research, I mean, we parallel in many ways of my research on, on Christ you know, since I was a little girl. But working with the Ho-Chunk um, Winnebago Native uh, shaman and, and wisdom keepers of their creation story and how Christ walked America after the death and resurrection, what it came to my point of view is that would make sense why they wanted to change language, to change history. So I'm just uh, I'm a little blown away by it. And her research is just truly, you know, I wanted to ask her if she believed that Da Vinci obviously had seen that shroud of Turin because, Mm -hmm. you know, my daughter at a very young age, like two, she could barely speak. Um, She knew that the one in the middle was Jesus. And I mean, she pointed it out. And if you've ever seen, you know, the last supper, you, you see that they pretty much kind of all look like, you know, alike. But the one, she she was able to look at the faces and point right down to the middle and let Jesus. So, I, I you mm. know, coming from a pure place and working with so many clients of all cultures and religions um, that have had, you know, Christ come in dreams or Christ come in to their meditations and and say, you know, I am I am who I am, you know. So it, it's just really fascinating. I don't think we'll ever stop um, bringing to this awakening, but it, it sounds like something's, you know, we're, we're ending the Piscean age, you know, at the time of Christ, the 2000 years. And uh, we're coming into a new age of awakening. So it would make sense that this lifetime would be the great awakening. Um, so I'm just putting all my little, you know, pieces of the puzzle, you know, the the shaman I've worked with said we all have a piece of the puzzle. So I think this is just, she's a fabulous guest. Like I said, I was all ears and, but using that gift of discernment, like Christ talks about in the Bible, that feeling, she's onto something, you know, my, my feelers were up and I always say, you can feel truth as truth. You can feel lies as lies and, and lies are toxic. Right. Mm-hmm. But, um, 
yeah, no, it was it was quite interesting. You know, we all we all get little bits from here and there, and I do believe that's what life is about, right? You know, finding out sure. God all over again, over and over and over again. <laughs> so sure. I think sure. it's, it's very interesting. We're definitely in an interesting lifetime and an interesting time. But I, you know, but because I am Christian, I believe in, you know, a world with no end. Right. So, um, mm. yeah, no, wonderful show. I can't wait oh, to have my. her back on. She was another one of those guests like we've had so many. We could just let her go and. <laughs> and we, I forgot about the clock. Really, I, we're we're in extra innings right now, so uh, I'm wow. not even sure how many people time we have with us live. Yeah. But uh, yeah, 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 there you go. Time so, Tamara, you're you know you're on blog radio now. You're not on you know network radio. You can make your own rules. I love it. <laughs> right. No breaks. No time. No clock. Good. No. So, let everybody know once again we we've been talking about uh, what you've got going on on weekends in uh, in northern Wisconsin here. What uh, what have you got going on? Right, right. Well, you know, we do God's work everywhere we go. That's where we're meant to be and we were called to do beautiful haunted, you know, all sorts of uh, you know, devils and and uh things like that of, you know, false prophets walking around. But uh, no, but <laughs> To, to give gift readings and spiritual guidance to people. I know God puts us in weird places. But, yeah, that's at Govins Farm in Menominee, Wisconsin. I will not be there this weekend, but I have two students, um, spiritual teaching students of mine, working it. And then Donette and I will be back the following weekend, the, the 24th, and then Halloween weekend, which, you know, all of those holidays, just all in alignment with, you know, All Saints Day. So this is a time where, you know, we're talking about the veils are very thin and truth can be revealed, right? So it's a great time to meditate and have truth be revealed. And it's a great time for spiritual reading. So I hope people can get out there. Our friend Aaron Houdini will be doing great escapes. Uh, Aaron being, you know, the great, great nephew of Harry Houdini. So I think, you know, like history repeats itself, um, the mystics and the, the sages and, and Houdini are, are out to, you know, show that death is an illusion and we continue on. So I'm very curious to, to see what she has to say next time. It's definitely, you know, interesting, we'll say. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we'll schedule her again. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So uh, Govan's Farm in Menominee, it's a, it's a corn maze and haunted corn maze and readings yeah. and yeah, everything um, Thing fun and scary. Here. Yeah. It's scary, <laughs> but it's fun. There is a non-haunted corn maze and pumpkins and stuff. And my my daughter, you know, chose that one because, you know, she's like me. We'll, we'll go where it's nice and there's nothing terrifying. <laughs> sure. <laughs> so, sure. But uh, I'm that kind of gal. So I offer solace to those that are tired of being scared by the devil, right? <laughs> but anyway, okay. yeah. She's got me on this like, yeah, this is great. I love it. Feels good. She's a great guest. (laughs) All right, Tamara. Thank you. We'll do it again then, okay? Yes, absolutely. Have a great night, everybody. Have a great night, Ryan. Thank you. You too. And that uh, concludes the episode for tonight, folks. We went uh, quite a ways over, but that's okay. Um, Join me on Friday. October 16th, we'll be talking with David Oates about reverse speech. 
Could it be that what you say forwards can be played backwards and your true feelings and your true intentions are revealed? We'll talk with David Oates about that. Reverse speech on uh, Friday, October 16th. Join me then. Hope to hear from you. Thank you for joining us. You've been listening to The Ryan Lindsay Show. Visit RyanLindsayShow.com for more information. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, We've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.